Tonight I want you to turn to Revelation 6 while I introduce you to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Faith, let me introduce the four horsemen of the apocalypse. (laughs) Actually, that's the wrestlers. What, you didn't watch wrestling growing up? Come on, tell the truth. That's Ric Flair and the boys. Come on, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Are you kidding me? Some of you go back a little further to Dusty Rhodes. Right? I'm not talking about these guys. These guys are bad, uh, but in other ways bad. The guys I want to introduce you tonight are just seriously vicious bad. I mean, I want to introduce you to the next slide, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The 19th century painting that portrays, many did of course, in various ways trying to reflect uh, all that's contained here in Revelation chapter 6. As we go now to the throne, we are in the throne of heaven, we are at the throne of God and the Lamb of God, which we have been introduced to over these last two weeks wonderfully by Pastor Stephen two weeks ago. And then Pastor Ed, this last week, we know where we are. And so verse 1 of chapter 6 says, Now I watched when the Lamb, who is the Lamb? Amen. Say it like you mean it. Who is the Lamb? Okay, don't ever say Jesus like Jesus. No, say Jesus. Every time you say his name, I'll have an exclamation point, right? So who is the Lamb? Jesus. Jesus opened one of the seven seals. And I want to remind you that Seals are a part of a decree, and the seals were unbreakable because there was no one found worthy. And John wept. It was so sad that there's no one worthy to open and to discover to the revelation of God, the plan and purposes of God, the agenda of God. No one was worthy until the Lamb stepped, stepped up and said, I, I'll take care of that. And so he's unrolling the scroll which is the decree of God, we'll see the judgments, the justice, the righteousness of God revealed on humanity and seal by seal. So as you roll, you break, you roll, you break, and as you continue to break the seals, more of the scroll is revealed. Are you with me? So Jesus is worthy, the only one, the Lamb, opens the first of seven seals. It's going to take us two weeks, by the way, to get through these seven seals. He opened the first of the seven, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth 
to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Pray with me, Lord, as we tremble at these scriptures, uh, trouble deeply at the events that are to unfold when your righteous judgments are decreed, declared, and revealed. Lord, uh, help us have the right mindset and the right attitude and to receive it in the right way uh, that, Lord, it might truly uh, shake us for ourselves, for our sake, and also for the sake of the multitudes of people living around us, moving about our world every day who don't know Jesus. Uh, do your work in our hearts as we expose this text and walk through it together in Jesus' name. Amen. So I gave you some notes there, and I want to help you with some preliminary considerations as we begin to unpack Revelation chapter 6. The first preliminary consideration is John's theological background. Now John is in isolation. He's exiled. He's on the Isle of Patmos. And he's seeing what he has uh, been invited to see. And he's writing down what he's seen. But this isn't in a vacuum. This is not in a void. Though he's, he's in, in a deserted place as it were. This is not out of context. There is a theological context for what John is writing to us. In fact, the theological background for John's prophecy is prophecy. The prophets, in fact. And John's writing this apocalyptic literature, all of Revelation, is really dependent on the Old Testament. On the Old Testament in style, in structure, in symbolism, and in content. You can look at Zechariah chapter 1 and 6. You can look at Ezekiel chapters 1 and 14, where you'll find horsemen horsemen and riders and judgments of God. You could go to the New Testament. In fact, you know, John spent a good bit of time with Jesus and read the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and Luke's writing of that same discourse in Luke 21. In fact, let me share it with you. So John's writing and he has a theological basis or background or foundation upon which he is writing what he's seeing. Matthew 24, 4, listen, Jesus said uh, when asked about this end of time, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Verse 9 says, then they will deliver you. Now, this is to the Jewish congregation. You with me now? Jesus is speaking in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24, 5 and into 6 is to, to the Jews. So in context, we understand who he's talking to. That's his audience. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for, not, for my name's sake. Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. John heard Jesus teach Matthew 24. So what he's seeing now in this vision of heaven and the eternal beginning is consistent with what he's already heard. Hey, by the way, there's a little side lesson about interpretation of Scripture. If what God says to you isn't consistent with what God said to you, throw it out. It's not God. 
So John's revelation is consistent with Old Testament prophecies and the very teachings of Jesus. Listen to Luke 21. Then he said to them, Jesus, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So I'm thinking that as John is seeing this revelation, there is an agreement in his spirit because he's heard about this before. It's not out of the blue. It has a theological background and context in the prophets. And the greatest prophet of all is who? Now, come on, I already told you, you got to say it like you mean it. Jesus, say it right. Now, I want you to notice as we head towards the four horsemen, John's contemporary context. Not only theological, but there's a contemporary context, and there always is in Scripture. Remember, we talked about this. When we're studying God's Word, we want to be careful not to lift a verse of Scripture out of its context and misapply it in our context. There's lots of Latin and German words won't bore you with that teach us that we have to understand what it meant them, then and to them to properly understand what it means now and to us. You with me? So there is a contemporary context and you have to set that context in the Roman world where John lives. And the reason John's only all of Patmos is thanks to the Romans, thanks to the emperor. Because John's not playing the game of emperor worship. He's not falling for it. He's not putting a pinch on the altar and saying, Hail Caesar, one day a year. That's all he had to do, by the way. And John said, Yeah, no, I'll take the island. <laughs> and so he's in exile in the context of Roman oppression and the Roman government and the Roman armies and Roman persecution. That, that's, that's his context. Now, some would say historically what John is actually speaking of in Revelation, and especially right here, are the comings of the Roman Empire. And some have even gone as far as to identify eras. Did I say that word right? Eras? Not error, eras. Epics, times, seasons, right? In the Roman story, from John's day until the fall of the Roman Empire. To include things eerily similar to what John is writing here. I have no problem with that, actually. No problem with that. You with me? Because John had a context. And John was writing to people who lived in that context who would hear, interpret, understand, and apply what they understood John to be saying in their context. Nobody in this day and time was thinking about us in our day and time. You with me? They were thinking about their day and time. They were living there then. So John's writing to, to people living under Roman oppression who need a word of encouragement in the midst of their oppression and persecution. And this encourages them because what's unfolded here is the falling of the Holy Roman Empire. Oh, excuse me, the Roman Empire. It's not holy yet. Question about whether it'll be holy when it's holy. Whole other story about Constantine. And the Dark Ages. But that's another story for another night. Some historians have said, you know, there are movements within the history of Rome and the Roman Empire from John's day until the fall of the empire that his revelations correspond to, and especially these seals as they are opened. Yeah, I don't dispute that, but here's the thing. We understand this, that prophecy has a context that's near with application to a context that's far, right? 
So when Isaiah is prophesying, when Jeremiah is giving a word of prophecy, when Ezekiel is giving a word of prophecy, sure, there's a context wherein Ezekiel sees the working out of that and the fulfillment of that in his immediate context. But it's like folding the timeline sort of like this. There's the here and there. There's the now and then. There's a what's up and what's coming up, right? And so while it is true that John's in a specific context related to Rome, it's not only related to Rome. For example, seven churches were literal seven churches in literal seven places in Asia Minor. So when John, uh, Jesus is speaking, John's writing down a letter to the seven churches. Those were people in places, in space and time, on the map, geography, right there they are. Where are they? Give me an example. They're in Smyrna, right? They're in Philadelphia, right? They're in Laodicea, right? Those are people in those places. But nobody believes that John's letter to the seven churches only applies to those specific seven churches at that time. Nobody believes that. Nobody believes that. First of all, seven is the number of totality. So anytime, especially in apocalyptic literature, you have a number, you have to say, what's that number there for? And seven is all of us. So a letter to the seven churches isn't only, though it was initially to those seven churches, it applies to us. So helping us understand the revelation of John in this context is in the Roman context with application to our day and time, to our context. It applies. I say that because there are some people who would dismiss all of this, saying that only applies in the immediate context. That is not the nature of apocalyptic literature. That is not the purpose of prophecy. Thirdly, let me say that I want to set this, if you allow me, at some liberty here, because we can't be conclusive, with a timeline of where we are in Revelation 4, 5, and 6. And this is the tribulation. I read that from Matthew 24. Jesus said there's a great time of trouble that's going to come. Tribulation. He called it the great tribulation. So where are we in Scripture now in Revelation regard to the end times timeline? Well, we're in the tribulation now. So the rapture has occurred before the tribulation. Amen? You don't, like my pastor used to say when I was a kid, you don't have to agree with me. You have every right to be wrong. The rapture has occurred. Now, there's a great reason for that, but I won't say that conclusively. You have some very good arguments for other uh, timelines. Uh, I think they're wrong, but I'm entitled to my opinion too, right? I think the rapture has occurred, and some things just very quickly, because that's not really what we're doing tonight, but I want you to set this in the timeline. The church is mentioned 19 times in chapters 1, 2, and 3, not one time in 4 to 19. Conspicuously missing, don't you think? Where'd it go? It's having a nice meal with Jesus, called the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's where they're at. And the rest of this good stuff is bad stuff happening on the earth to those who missed the coming up here now I I I could build a stronger case that this is in fact Daniel's 70th week which Jeremiah and Jeremiah 30 called the time of Jacob's distress that's why the Olivet Discourse Matthew 24 applies to the Jews because Christians aren't there The the church is gone but the Jews remain in God's plan and fulfillment in the 70th week of Daniel the tribulation. First half being the tribulation, second half being the great tribulation. As bad as the first half is, the second half gets a whole lot worse. Uh, 
So where are we in Revelation? Four, five, six now. We're right in the Revelation, uh, the uh, tribulation. And you can read about that. I'll read it for you. First Thessalonians chapter four. This will comfort you. When the Thessalonians said to Paul, hey, our loved ones are, are, are gone. And, and what's happened to them? Paul writes, but we don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant, some translations say, meaning you don't know. Brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning they've died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, the resurrection is key, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Here we go. You ready for this? Say, I'm ready. I ought to make you stand for this, but I won't. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be raptured. The word's not there. Caught up will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Have you done any rapture practice lately? You don't have to practice. Jesus will do all the work. You just enjoy the ride as you head on home. So the rapture has occurred. And the rapture, as you may remember, is a signless event. That's why I really believe that the rapture happens before the tribulation because we'll see some things happening in that tribulation that if it were a mid-trib rapture, we would know when it's coming. Or a post-trib rapture, we would know when it's coming. But the rapture in Scripture is a signless event. It's sudden. And by the way, sudden, Revelation especially, soon doesn't mean like in a minute. It means suddenly. Soon means quickly, suddenly. Wow, bang, done. The rapture in this timeline at the beginning of the tribulation is the one thing that can happen when there is no expectation of it. Boom. I favor that. I think 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 18, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, Revelation 3, 10 all give us encouragement that the church will be spared, spared the worst of it, if not all of it, the tribulation that is. And so this signless event, how do we know when it's coming? We won't. But I can tell you this. The table is set. The table is set. I had the privilege on Megiddo overlooking the Jezreel Valley to, to talk about prophecy and apocalyptic material. Do you realize that, that some of the things the scripture says have to happen in order for Christ to return 100 years ago would have been thought to be absolutely ridiculously impossible. Forget about it. It's never going to happen. And then things started changing over there in the Middle East. And they're still changing. I mean, you read some of these things in Revelation, which we will come to. How in the world will the whole world watch as two martyrs go down in blood in Jerusalem? How's the whole world going to see that? 100 years ago? Forget about it. Not going to happen. It's impossible. So you don't have to worry about that. It's not going to happen. Now, we watch things happen anywhere all around the world immediately simultaneously as it's happening, don't we? Thank you, satellite. 666, the mark of the beast. How, how, how do we mark every person on the planet after the rap? How do we do that? 
you're already marked. I was driving down Steuben Airline yesterday. It stopped at the intersection. Every person beside me, in front of me, and behind me was on their phone. By the way, you know they're planting chips now in people so you don't have to even take your phone out. You just wave your hand. Hello? hundred years ago? Come on. Now? I can see it. Can't you see it? All right, so let's move on. What I'm making a point is, is where this fits. Where are we in the timeline of end times? We're in the tribulation. I'm not there. I hope you won't be. I'm sticking with it. I'm sticking with it, Ed. I'm sticking with it. I hope I'm right. Don't you hope I'm right? I mean, if you hope I'm wrong, what's wrong with you? You don't want to be here. I want to show you in a minute. You do not want to be here. What's important is to be ready whenever Jesus returns. So let's go to the text and let's meet the four horsemen. The four horsemen who deliver. You know, uh, in John's day, a horse and rider was a message, a deliverer. The king sent out a message. He sent it on horse and rider. Nowadays, it'll probably be an Amazon plane. I would have said FedEx or UPS, but they're not going to be in business in a year. Because Amazon's taking over the world. Did y'all know that? Taking over the world. Next thing you know, they're going to be talking about Bezos being the Antichrist. Yeah. I'm just kidding on that, of course. He's not. He's got problems. He's not that. These horsemen in John's day, in context, it's a message, a delivery. It's a horse and rider. He's delivering. And what do these deliver? Well, as the seals are broken, remember seal is important. Seals represent what? They, they represent the security of the content. It's not tampered with. It's not altered. It's not been messed with. It's secure. The seal is broken. And what's contained is exposed or and revealed in our case. Uh, seals represent authenticity. It's the real deal. If it's got a signet on a seal, you know this came from the king. This came from the prince. This came from somebody who has some authority. It reflects that authority. And finally, you know, authenticity and authority. If it comes with a seal, it comes. So that messenger has the word from the king or the one who sent that message. He carries with it the king's authority. That's what the seal means. It's the authority of the king. So it's secure. Its contents are safe. It's authentic. The seal proves that. And finally, it comes with the authority of the one whose ring is impressed upon the seal. Jesus breaks the seals one at a time. And God's decrees of judgment begin to pour out. The white horse, the white horse and rider. There's great agreement in the scholarship world that this is conquest. Conquest. Some people say, many people say, well, this is Jesus. Because they see the white horse and they see the crown and they say, well, that must be Jesus. And it might be. I mean, there are arguments for this being the Messiah. And the coming to conquer and to conquer, conquering and to conquer is the gospel. Going into dark places and, and making sort of one last gathering before the bad stuff begins to happen. Connect it to Revelation 19 with the crown. But there are a few problems and some possible alternatives to the interpretation that it's Jesus. And I don't, I'm not mad that anybody thinks it's Jesus. I just don't think it's Jesus. Number one, he's not wearing the same crown in Revelation 6 that he's wearing in Revelation 19. He's wearing a diadem in 19. In Revelation 6, he's, he's wearing a Stephanos. It's a different crown. 
It's sort of hard to imagine here if you think about it that Jesus, who's breaking the seal, is going to run out and jump on a horse real quick in between seal one and two. You see what I'm saying? I mean, I know God can everywhere and do anything, but why? So, so it's problematic to, to say it's Jesus. The other thing is it, it could possibly be a deception. could be a deception. And you know who the great deceiver is. We'll see in the coming chapters that, that, that Satan is an angel of light. He deceives the nations. The Antichrist is... His rep is a deceiver extraordinaire. I mean, brilliant in deception. So maybe we shouldn't be fooled by a white horse. Conquering kings all rode white horses. It was a symbol of victory. So it could be possibly, if you want to put a name or a face to this, we can't, but you might say this is the Antichrist. I think that opinion has great merit. Because of the possibility of Satan as a deceiver and therefore Antichrist being deceptive, he's certainly powerful, he's charismatic, and he's going to negotiate as we continue through the scriptures a false peace that favors Israel. And suddenly Israel becomes everybody's buddy for three and a half years. And then, because it's a false sense of security, the Antichrist reveals who he truly is and how early going to be, and the whole world turns against Israel. So it's possible, I'll just say it's possible that the white horse and rider, which is conquest, is not Jesus, but the Antichrist, or at least the deceiving spirit, if not the Antichrist himself. I know what you're thinking. Can God, can Jesus send an evil presence? Can, 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 well, of course. He's God. And he uses Satan to punish his enemies. So certainly he could. The red horse and rider is war. The, the red horse and rider, he takes, he's given the authority, he takes peace. He takes peace. By the way, red, you know the color red, what that reflects, what that represents, why red? Bloody, 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 bloody. We stood over the valley of Jezreel and we read from the scriptures where it talks about the, the blood and the gore in the valley is up to the bridles of the horses. So that's a lot of gore, a lot of blood. Well, there's a lot of people in that valley, and they're all going to bleed. I mean, a 200 million man army from China for start. How about we start 200 million soldiers from China? Add to that perhaps Russia, add to that Persia, add to that the Arab countries coming up from the south, add to that the 10 nation confederacy from the west, otherwise known as the well, I'm not going to say it. You said it. You said European Union. I didn't say that. So you put hundreds of million men in that valley. You got a big, big, big bloody mess. The red horse and rider, it's world war. He takes peace and the war is at the world is at war with itself. You see, Israel has now become a problem. A problem, and the world turns on Israel. Israel now becomes the focal point of all of the animosity against God. Because if you can't get to God, what do you do? You go after his people. You go after his people. So what we see now unfolding is the final solution to the Jewish problem that Hitler failed to solve. 
The more things change, the more they stay the same. The red horse and rider, war. The black horse and rider, famine. Famine. The second seal, red horse. The third seal, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. Some people think scales in John's time was justice. But it's not justice in the legal or court sense. It's just as in treating one another justly. The scales are to ensure that what you are trading is what you're offering. What you're receiving is what you are buying. Especially in this context, because look what happens. And I heard what seemed to be a voice, we don't know whose voice, in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. So what does that mean? Well, a denarius is a day's labor. It's a day's labor. It takes a day of hard work to earn a denarius in John's economy, a day. So what we see here is it takes all day for the essential basics and only the basics. You could get a little more barley, but it's less nutritional and of lesser value, so it's about the same. Bottom line is you're going to work all day for you. You got family, you got children, you got elderly parents. You're going to work all day for you so that you can have something to eat. But I want you to see what's happening here. Don't touch the oil, it says, nor the wine. So we have this massive inflation to where it costs 10 times more for these ingredients than it did before. Massive inflation, 10 times more. So whereas a man worked a day could have fed 10 people, now he works a day to feed himself. But don't touch the oil and the wine. Some people say it's because the luxurious items are not in short supply. Because if you can't afford wheat and barley, who cares about wine and oil? Could be that. Or there could be a bit of a disparagement here. I just totally made up a word. Could be a little distinction here between rich and poor. You with me? So not everybody's famine. This is feast or famine. Don't touch the oil and the wine. That, those are, those are, are things that people who have enough to eat can then to begin to consider consuming themselves with. This is the luxury. So could it be possibly that socialism actually... Doesn't make everything fair and equal for anybody ever, never, ever has, won't hear. You have the haves and you have the have-nots. Now think about this for a minute. In John's context, what are the Christians struggling with? The imperial cult of Rome. Remember what you have to do here. One time a year, only one day a year, not 365, just one day. You can believe anything you want on the earth. You can believe in the craziest craziest thing in the world as long as one day a year you go to the imperial temple take a pinch of altar drop it on the oh, sorry pitch hold on a minute pinch got to be careful of incense put it on the altar and say those magic words Caesar is Lord and what do you get for your five minute devotion to Caesar what do you get you get a certificate a certificate that says, he checked the box. He said Caesar is Lord. He put some incense on the altar and said the formula. Here's your certificate that you may now use to buy and sell, to trade, to do business, to be a part of the economy. If you don't have the certificate, let me tell you something, nobody's going to deal with you. You know why? 
because you've been ostracized because you did not say Caesar is Lord. And just in case the Romans think your buddy's guilty by association, no more associating with you. So suddenly Christians are on the outside of the economic system. They can't buy and sell. They can't trade. They become a subculture in a sense just trying to survive while everybody who puts that uh, uh, incense on the altar uh, prospers. They're doing great, but, but the believers, the God's people, they're, they're in famine. So John sees this going forward. And, and by the way, we'll, we'll cover this next week, but there are God's people during the tribulation. You, you, you're with me on that. I'm going to cover that next week. It's the next two seals, you'll see that. There, there are God's people. There's a remnant. There are believers in the Most High God. There are people faithful to God during this time. And they got a problem because there's no 666 on their forehead, the back of their neck or stamped in their hand or in their phone. However it's going to be done, don't know, but I can tell you this. There will be people who say, no thanks Caesar, you're not God, you're not Lord and I'll not bow the knee to you. And those people are suffering. They're going to suffer. We'll see that next week. Come back next week. Come back next week and we will see that what I've just said is true. So this horse, this black horse and rider, famine brings deprivation and starvation, perhaps to all. Maybe I'm totally wrong about the whole oil and wine thing. Or maybe there's a very small select number of people who have all the power and all the money and they have all the oil and wine they want or need. But the majority of the people, if it were, or at least God's people, they're suffering. This is a great tribulation. And finally, the pale horse, the pale horse and rider. The third seal, the black horse. The fourth, verse 7. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature. Come, I look, behold, a pale horse, pale. Uh, in, in the picture I showed you, sort of a green tint. Uh, in others, it's sort of an ashen gray. How you take the word here and, and flesh the word out. If you put it all together, what you really come up with is a corpse. I mean, it's a, it's a putrefied, decaying sort of green, gray, pale, ugh, ooh. This is a pale horse. And its rider, his name was Death. So the fourth horseman of the apocalypse, typically we see him uh, sometimes as the grim reaper. And he carries that scythe or sickle that he, that he swings as it were a harvest, but his harvest is of souls, the lives of, of men and women. And Hades followed him because Hades is like this gigantic uh, mouth that sucks up the souls of the people who are killed in this tribulation and holds them in, in the bonds of Hades. Hades is not hell. Hell's not yet. Hades is the dwelling place of the unredeemed unbeliever. Okay? Just like paradise is the paradise of believers before the new heaven and the new earth. Paradise, Hades down here. So we have earth and then Hades and paradise, going along here for a while, end, heaven, hell, right? We'll get there. We'll get there. You won't, if you listen, if you believe, right, Stephanie? You don't have to go to that place. You know that, don't you? I had a pastor friend one time, Jeff Crook, who preached at my church in First Daytona Beach, and can I just tell you what he said without you being mad at me? I'm just telling you what he said. He said, every Christian needs to walk around town every day telling somebody, you don't have to go to hell. 
He was from Georgia. I cringed because I thought we were in Florida. But it worked out and he was right. You don't have to go there. Should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why did God send Jesus so you wouldn't go to hell? I'm not joking. I mean, it's, I am in a sense to sort of lighten the... But, I, but seriously, you don't have to go to hell. That's, you don't have to. No one's foreordained or predetermined to spend eternity in a place called hell. That place is for the devil and his demonic angels. It's not for you. God did not make that place for you. But if you go where they're going, you get what they get when they get there. So don't do that. Turn around. Repent, the Bible uses the word. Repent, believe in Jesus, and be saved from that. Should not, you should not. And we don't want anybody. Listen, you, you don't have an enemy. You hate enough to want them to spend eternity in the place prepared for the devil. You don't. You think you, you might. You might even say or think that you wouldn't. I mean, this is a Wednesday night crowd. Come on, give me a break. But someone might have someone they think, I wish they would just, no, you don't. Not if you could see it for a minute. Not if you could just take a quick look. Just say, oh, let me see. Peek. Oh, you know what? I don't hate anybody that bad. So Hades just gobbles them up and holds them. There's no escape from Hades, by the way. There's, there's no, it's, it's not uh, purgatory where you are purged of your sins. If Jesus isn't enough and his, sufficient, his sacrifice wasn't all sufficient, we're all in trouble. Forget paying after, right? No. What can you offer? How, let me ask you a question. How short did Jesus come in, in paying the penalty for our sins? What, was he a dollar short? Was he 50 cents short? I mean, was, we owed a million dollars and Jesus paid $999,999.99. But you've got to put a penny in this. We're all in trouble. He paid it all. That, that's the song, isn't it? Jesus paid it all. Yeah, he did. So uh, there's no release from Hades. This is death comes and Hades gobbles up one-fourth of the population. Whew! Now, that was a lot of people in John's day. But you know how many people are on the planet today? Somebody tell me. Six billion? Seven billion? Do I hear eight billion? Maybe by then. Yeah, so think about a million and a half to two million people. Gone. Did I say what? Billion? Help me, Tom. My math's not so good. I've slept four hours a night for the last four nights. I'm still on Jerusalem time. So if there are six billion people on the planet Earth and a fourth of them are gone, that's a, a billion and a half people. Thank you very much. I don't want to understate the destruction. I really don't. That's a bad, bad number. A billion and a half people die. On the other hand, if God didn't step in and intervene, it all die. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 24? Isn't that what Jesus said? Except for the mercy of God, they'd all be dead. They'd all, everything, everybody, God's wrath. Oh my goodness, who can stand? But out of mercy and, and knowing that, listen to this, that even God's judgment is redemptive in nature. It's redemptive. So four horsemen of the apocalypse, conquest, world war, famine, death, and Hades. Let me give you two quick takeaways. Number one, 
Yes, you are right. God's judgment is fierce. Fierce. His holiness and His righteousness demands judgment. And our sin and rebellion deserves it. Let's just be honest. We're not all that, you know. We're not. Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All, all have sinned. And sin is rebellion against a holy and righteous God. I say, oh, it's just a little white lie. No, it's telling God he's not God. It's telling God you get to call the shots. It's telling God you're in charge. When you disobey God, it's not just a little sin. It's outright rejection of the holiness and righteousness of God, which means you have just run contrary to his character. Now what's he got to do? What's he got to do? He's got to respond. And God's response to sin and rebellion is judgment and wrath. You have a problem with that. You have a problem with the Bible. Because the Bible is clear that the righteous and just wrath of God will be poured out on sin and therefore sinners. And it's fierce. It is. I mean, over the course of the next several weeks and months, by the way, we're going to be in Revelation all year. Is that okay? Yes. All right. I mean, if you want to go get some, some feel-good stuff, I, I don't know where to tell you. Uh, I don't know anybody around here is doing feel-good on Wednesday nights. So, you, you know, it's Revelation. So, all year, we're going to be right here. And God's judgment, as fierce as it is, does two things. Notice this. It punishes sin and sinners, which is the righteous response of a right and righteous God. It punishes sinners. And it purifies saints. So there's a refining going on here. Because there are people of God on the planet during this time. And this fierce judgment, we'll see next week, that some of the people around the throne that we're going to see next week in the sixth and seventh seal are martyrs. For Christ during the tribulation. Now, if you grew up like I did and you watched Left Behind in the 1970s, you, you don't believe that. But listen, this ain't Hollywood. This is the Bible. I don't think that movie's made in Hollywood. It wasn't good enough to be made. Hollywood would, wow. So my point being, uh, what was my point being, Hank? You, you and I were having a little conversation here and I, I lost my point. Punish sin, purify saints. The saints during the tribulation, there is a pure... Jesus said many will fall away. During this time, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, during this time, during the great tribulation, many will flee. Many will fall away. So in the first three and a half years, peace. Everybody loves Israel. Let's all be Jewish until the fire falls. And then we find out what's inside so God's judgment both punishes sin and sinners and purifies saints and that ought to scare us I mean seriously you know we're we're laughing on Wednesday night because we'd cry if we didn't right I mean this would be so heavy because it is but I want to encourage you with this last takeaway God is in control God, this did not get away from God. This did not get away from God. Where are we? In Revelation 4 and 5, where are we? Stephen Morris, where are we? 
in Revelation 4. Holy, holy, holy is the... Where are we? We're at the throne of God, in the throne room of God. Revelation 5. Pastor Ed, where are we? Who's breaking the seal? Who's delivering the news? Who's pouring out God's righteous and right judgment? Jesus. Who's in charge? Don't worry about it. Because God's in control. God's in control. I'm going to encourage you that God is in control. This is the working out of God's plan. This is the working out of God's will. The Lamb of God, from the throne of God, sends these messengers with the wrath of God on sin to punish and saints to purify. And I want you to get this because you're going to want to remember this in the coming weeks. That when we read the Revelation and when we think about judgment and wrath and the end of time, the humanness in us winces a bit. Pushes back, we're troubled, and we should be. We really should. I mean, if you revel in this, this should trouble us. It should, uh, by the way, cause us to action. Because mm-hmm. right now, we have the chance to save a lot of people from this. Right now, we do. You know the one thing you can't do in heaven? Win somebody to Jesus. You know, we can have donuts and coffee, share stories and give our testimony forever. But what you cannot do in heaven is win a lost person to Jesus and save their soul from hell. Can't do it. So when do we do that? Now's it. This is it. It's all we got right now. That's why I'm telling you. This matters, y'all. This is important. Some people read this and they push back. I've heard this. I heard this this week. I just can't worship a God like that. I said, really, Benny? I said, as nicely and lovingly as I think I could, I don't think I did a very good job, but who are you? Who am I to judge God? I just can't believe in a God who does that. He ain't bothered at all by your unbelief. Did you know that? Belief doesn't make him God. Unbelief doesn't make him not God. God is God. You can believe it or not. I mean, that's just the truth. God is God. Your unbelief doesn't unmake God. God doesn't. Doesn't change anything about or in God. I mean, he's pleased when you believe in him, when you love and worship him, when, when you serve him. But if you say, I don't believe in you, he's not, not God suddenly. Any more than worshiping this plant makes this plant God. That's ridiculous. God is God. So here's the thing. You can trust this. What I want you to write down. Think about this. Can you write this down? Whatever God does, it is right, it is just, and it is justified. Doesn't matter how I think about it. Doesn't matter how I feel about it. He's God. And it would be contrary to and inconsistent with the very character and nature of God, which is immutable. He'll never change. To say, God, why don't you go easy on these poor sinners? I just can't believe, God, that you would... You're supposed to be the God of love. How in the world can can this stuff... How could you condone this? How how could you cause this? I can't believe it, a God like that. Hey, you haven't changed God one bit when you say that. 
You've just put yourself in the line of fire, that's all. Right? So hold on to this now, that whatever God does is right, just, and justified. I don't have to understand it. I don't have to agree or even like it. I don't. It doesn't change a thing. Because God is God. But here's the good news. Because everything God does is right, just, and justified, I can trust God in and with whatever God does. I can trust Him. And because I can trust Him, I can rest and find peace in Him. Because He's God. Thank God I'm not. Thank God you're not. Thank God He is. So as we walk through these next few chapters and over these next few months, whenever you have that bit of trouble well up within you, ask yourself, is that the Holy Spirit trying to get my attention to call me to repentance and faith and salvation in Jesus? Or is that the devil or my flesh trying to trouble me and disturb my peace and cause me to fear irrationally and unreasonably? The solution to both is Jesus. Either turn to him for salvation and let the Holy Spirit have done its work, his work in your heart to bring you to repentance. Or you rest in Jesus because what he's going to tell you is, is I got this and I got you. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that the truth of God's word is both encouraging and uplifting to you. If you'd like more information about our church, service times, or locations, or if you have a question about what you heard today and you want to connect with someone, I want to encourage you to visit us on our website at championforest.org. Have a great day and God bless.